You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, Brandon, thank you for the introduction. Um, Thank you all for coming. I'm very grateful uh, for the opportunity, and I, and, uh, I have to say there's only one disappointment that I have, and that disappointment is that we're being served wine instead of a true Lutheran beverage, which would be beer. Um, but uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a minor thing, and I think we can, uh, you can stick with wine and drink it without any guilt. So um, when we address the question whether Luther has, can teach us anything today, we have to ask ourselves, well, is Luther really sort of one of us? You've already seen the next slide. In many ways, Luther is a household name. Uh, he is even a little figurine in Germany that was put out by Playmobil. Uh, I recently took one of those figurines to the Vatican, uh, wondering if Luther was going to swim the Tiber or not. Um, but I, I did not throw it into the water, so uh, we don't quite know the answer. Uh, more seriously, though, I mean, in many ways... We like to tell these stories about Luther, um, you know, his conversion experience, his sort of decision to, or, or rather his decision to go into, the, into the, the monastery, and so on and so forth. And in many ways, he is a household name and uh, a children's figurine. But in many ways, he is also not one of us. If you take, for example, Luther's belief in the devil, it strikes us as just simply positively alien. And I have just one quote to, uh, for you that illustrates that. Um, this is what Luther says about the devil in one of his commentaries. Through his witches, the devil is able to do harm to children, to give them heart trouble, to blind them, to steal them, or even to remove a child completely and put himself into the cradle in place of the stolen child. I have heard, Luther says, that in Saxony there was such a boy. He was suckled by five women and still could not be satisfied. There are many similar instances. Now, if that doesn't strike you as strange, then uh, maybe you also don't belong in our time. (laughs) And then there are other other strange things about Luther, or maybe not so strange. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with this website called the Lutheran Insulter. And... That perhaps is a strange thing about Luther. You are the devil's most dangerous tool. Um, And you can press the button down there and say, insult me again. Um, I thought a little bit about Luther's language, and certainly some of it um, does not quite live up to what we might describe as civil discourse. But then I think of Twitter today, and and maybe maybe in that sense, Luther is actually one of us. So... um, he, can certainly, he certainly has a way with words, and sometimes it's an interesting uh, way with words. You are a brothel keeper and the devil's daughter in hell, uh, Luther can say uh, to one of his opponents. Um, and he usually, there's usually something very serious behind those kind of accusations, but, um, but perhaps that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, that he can sort of throw them about just like, just like that. On a more serious note... Um, we also need to ask about Luther's concerns. When he writes, 
in one of his commentaries about the nature of theology and who theology is aimed at, he says the following. Theology pertains only to the consolation of the afflicted, the miserable and the despairing, to those who droop and fall because they have broken and crushed hearts. Now, you have to admit that that doesn't quite sort of seem to capture where we are today as a culture. People who droop and fall because they have broken and crushed hearts, the afflicted, the miserable, the despairing. Can Luther still speak to us today? And then you have Luther's own biographical autobiographical testimony, um, where he describes himself and his relation to God uh, in the following words. And he wrote this about a year um, before his death, but reflecting on some early years in his life in the monastery. He writes the following, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not um, blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with, right, with his righteous wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon St. Paul at that place. He's commenting on Romans 1, um, 16, 17 here, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. Again, not a particularly late modern mindset. Somebody who says, I lived as a monk without reproach, and yet his conscience was so troubled that it led him um, to anger at God and hatred of God. So, I have to repeat the question. Can Luther really speak to us today, or is he just some alien from 500 years ago um, who really has nothing to teach us? If you look at the state of the church during Luther's time, uh, this is sort of one of those uh, polemical cartoons, and there were quite a lot of them that were produced during the time of the Reformation. Um, here on the, on the right side, you have kind of the, the Lutheran side's description of what they considered to be wrong with the church um, at that time. Um, Luther complained to Erasmus that the church made people into reckless workers who worried so much about the, the standing before God, who worried so much about God being, being judgmental and perhaps excessively judgmental. So um, it's really quite fascinating because the right side of this cartoon is very, very busy. Um, there's, there's a lot of things happening. There is a, uh, you know, indulgences are being sold. There is a bell that's being blessed. Um, there is a, um, a Corpus Christi procession around the church and so on and so forth. Um, and what the 
reformers, what the Lutheran side in this particular case opposed to that was a very kind of focused idea of the church. But again, we have to ask, are we what the medievals were? And therefore, can Luther speak to us today? Now, Luther's diagnosis, and maybe I'll, I'll start with this quote and then I'll comment on it. This is sort of what Luther, um, what Luther concluded. He says, reflecting against on his autobiographical journey, at, at last by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who, who through faith is righteous shall live. So he gave heed to the context of those, those words of St. Paul. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning of the righteousness of God. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written. He who through faith is righteous, who believes that God is righteous, shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory and I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God, that is that what God does in us, the power of God, that, which he, um, that with which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. What am I driving at here? Because I do want to actually make the claim that Luther does have something to say to us and something to teach us. The problem that Luther saw in the church of his day was that people actually did not pay sufficient attention to God. It was almost like um, God was sort of a vanishing point. Um, they registered the fact that there is God, but then they immediately started to think about themselves. They immediately started to worry about themselves, and they perceived the righteousness of God as something by means of which God judged unrighteous human beings who could never live up to God's standard of righteousness. Um, they perceived the wisdom of God as something that God um, basically reserved for himself. The grace of God as something that God was very reluctant to give and to share. And Luther says, no, no, no. If you pay attention to God, if you dwell and really sort of tease out the implications of Christ's suffering, then you have to realize that perhaps God is not this jealous being who is only God because he is not like us and who keeps sort of himself away from us and expects us to live up to his standard. Rather, God is the kind of being who shares himself and shares the entirety of his being with us. And, that, and for that reason, God's righteousness is not something that we have to live up to, but rather something that he gives to us. God's wisdom is not something that is inscrutable, but rather something by which he makes us wise. Uh, God's strength, again, is not that by means of which he towers over us, but that by means of which he makes us strong. 
And Luther says, we must pay attention to God, because if we pay attention to God, we will realize that God is good. And if we dwell on that goodness, it's just going to sort of open up and blossom. And it will captivate us so much that um, that we, we will simply delight in God and we will love God rather than hate God. It's only when God is sort of, um, uh, like I said, when people sort of register there, there is a God and they immediately then start thinking about themselves. Oh my gosh, there is God. So what am I expected to do? This is sort of what Luther was trying to counter um, in the church of his day. So here is sort of what I want to propose to you um, and how I want to tease out the relevance of Luther for us tonight. Um, he says at one point, obviously commenting on his own day, it is a great and difficult art, Luther observes, to fix our eyes only on the steadfast love of God and his abundant mercy. It is a great and difficult art to fix our eyes only on the steadfast love of God and his abundant mercy. And what I want to argue, or maybe um, have you comment on later on, is whether or not the problem of God's goodness is also a problem for us. Can we accept today that God is good, just as it seemed to be a bit of a challenge in Luther's day, because the moment people thought of God, they started thinking about themselves. They never, they never, they never teased out what it meant that God was who He was, especially in light of His work, in light of His work in Christ. So, do we understand God's goodness today? I was trying to use a picture of Brandon Bennett to represent the modern self, uh, <laughs> but I, I decided to stick with uh, just my own pictures. Um, so, do we understand God's goodness today? God is good. What does it mean? Now, what I don't want to argue for is this kind of shallow understanding of goodness. Um, because I think there is more to divine goodness. I mean, sometimes people would say, well, God is good. It's like, obviously, he is good. Um, and it's the sort of goodness that really doesn't change or transform, transfigure anything. Um, God is good in the sense that he simply accepts me just as I am. Um, and God is really, in effect, good only when he leaves me alone. Um, that's not the kind of goodness that I have in mind. I mean, that's, in, in a sense, that kind of goodness we could sort of deal with but it's no goodness at all. If it, doesn't, if it doesn't accomplish anything and doesn't change anything, then God's goodness simply means God's absence. So I don't want to argue um, about God's goodness understood as sort of God really, in effect, leaving me alone um, to be just as I am. But I want to ask about something more, the, the kind of really textured, uh, fleshed out divine goodness and um, and then to, again, renew the question, is that something that is difficult for us also today? Just as in Luther's day, do we have a hard time accepting that God is good? This is Luther's definition uh, of the first article of the creed from the small catechism. And I take that to be 
uh, a partial definition of what it means that God is good. And then, again, I want to reflect with you on whether or not this is tough for us or perhaps not that tough. So Luther writes, in response to, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is his commentary. I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all that I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does out of fatherly, divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this, it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. Do we understand this today? Are we comfortable with this? Because in some sense, we might argue that today, nothing is really good for good. That we don't really have a sense today, again, do we, of things being sort of good because they come from God. Today, nothing is good for good. Um, our lives seem to be driven by fads which define what is good and what isn't good. Or things are, or the goodness of things is defined by their utility. Um, things are only good when I have made something of them or done something with them, when they are useful to me, when they are good for me. So in our world today, Nothing seems to be good for good, and things are only good very often when they are good for me, otherwise they are sort of blank. Um, to go back again to what Luther says here, what Luther seems to describe is a different kind of situation. He says that our lives have gravity that we are surrounded by things that are good. Good without remainder. Good in themselves. Good because they come from God's goodness. And if you look at how he perceives God's goodness, um, you have to conclude that God's goodness really calls us to a new relationship to ourselves, our bodies, things, and people. It calls us to a new relationship because he, Luther, start, again, starts with, I am a creature of God. I am good because God has deemed me good. My eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, that, those already are evidences of divine, um, of divine goodness. And then everything else that surrounds me. My life has gravity. There are good things in it. But can we, again, can we accept, us, accept it today in a world where the goodness of things is only defined by fads 
and where things are only good when they are good for me. You see, we rebel. The message of the gospel that by his own giving and self-giving, God not only gives us gravity and makes sense of us, but above all justifies the ungodly for good, this kind of message is foolishness in the world of extreme makeovers and free-range desire. Is it not? That we are, that we, we are God's workmanship in a world that is God's own before all else is perhaps a tough pill to swallow today. Now, okay, so let's, let's sort of accept that there is a kind of a fundamental difference between how very often we perceive the world and how we define what is good in the world and Luther's perception that God is the author of good and that somehow our lives, before we make anything of them or do something with them, before we even sort of look at ourselves, have a certain kind of gravity. We like a world of free-range desire and a world of extreme makeovers. But are we any better for it? And this is, again, where I, where I would submit Luther has something to teach us. Um, are we any better um, for it? In a sense, you might say, if things are good, not, not in themselves. We, we, fe we fear, in general, kind of the, kind, the inherent goodness of things. And just to give you an example, I think um, if, somebody, if somebody gives you a gift, because Luther basically argues that everything that God does for us and everything that he gives us, including our own selves, are gifts. And we know how difficult gifts can be. You cannot simply, like we can, you can sort of put it in the closet um, at best, I think we, we like to re-gift gifts because we realize that gifts, in some sense, obligate us. There is, if something comes to me as a gift, um, it places me under constraint. Um, it, it requires that I sort of respect it, um, that I pay attention to it. Uh, it basically says, this thing is not blank because it has come to me as a gift. Um, and like I said, even our, I think our gift practices, in some sense, give us an insight into why the goodness of God is problematic for us. Um, because um, in the gifts that we receive, we very often recognize not the kind of joyful aspect of the gift, but the obligation that the gift brings with itself. So we like to have control over our world. We like to sort of our world to be what we make of it and how we define it. We like sort of the fleetingness of the world. Um, and we don't like things to be good in and of themselves because today my iPhone 7 is a good thing, but tomorrow people will look down on me for having this very phone. So, so the inherent goodness of things is, is, is a tough thing to, to, for us to deal with. And yet Luther sort of insists, God is the giver of all that is good. And it begins inside of me and it sort of goes um, all the way to the outside. How can we live with this message, and should we live with this message? And I, and I, again, I submit that Luther actually has is onto something here and has something to say to us. Namely, again, to go back to that question: Are we better, better off in our world of free-range desire 
and constant and sometimes extreme makeovers. In a sense, we are not, because even if in this freedom of sort of separation from things, in this, in this sort of freedom where everything is blank until I have approached it, um, we still remain at bottom creatures who crave recognition. We still want to be accepted and given the thumbs up. We still want to be admired, appreciated. We still want to be, in a sense, spoken into being by other people who make room in their lives for us. But in a world where nothing is good for good, perhaps what we end up with is that um, it's almost, well, I don't know, a treadmill would be one, one way to describe it, um, that this world is not a happy place in the end. The world that promised this unencumbered freedom, freedom to simply make of the world as I please and make of myself as I please and do, um, do with things what I want to do with them. That world is not a happy place for us because where nothing is good for good, we need to be constantly alert to all the recent fads and fleeting goods, to the hot stuff of the day that we hope will make us desirable and worth other people's while. Now, making sure that your phone is upgraded to the latest model is perhaps one of the least of modern worries. But making sure you always know the right people, you avoid the undesirables, and keep your network responsive, that's much harder work. And perhaps in light of this sort of um, busyness that our lives are defined by, we can look on the Middle Ages and say, you know, perhaps in the Middle Ages, in the situation that Luther confronted, it was actually easier for people because all they had to do is just secure God's mercy, which seemed like an easier task than um, keeping your fellow human beings attentive, engaged, and ready to bestow the much-craved thumbs up. Um, are we perhaps even more reckless in our working than the medievals themselves were. Is the world where nothing is good for good really the kind of world in which we can have a, a permanent place, salvation, and a world that gives us rest? I would say it's not. And this is where, again, Luther's emphasis on God's goodness comes as something difficult, but it also comes as a promise. God justifies us not the, world, the way, not the way the world does. God offers us, his, offers us his love, not the way the world does, on the basis of whether or not we are following the recent fads and sort of going with the flow and making sure that everything is upgraded and we know the right people and so forth and so forth, and, and so on and so forth. God justifies us freely. He justifies us because of his sheer goodness, because he is that kind of a God who desires to share himself with the unworthy and the sinners and the undesirables and those who perhaps in and of themselves are not very lovely and lovable. So when Luther says, this is what God does, God enters our lives just as he enters the, entered the lives of the medievals, and requires, by his sheer sort of overabundance, requires us to pay attention to him. Um, Luther says, this is 
the message that people need to hear, and perhaps this is the message that we need to hear um, today as well. Because what that fact, the fact of God's goodness means, is that, first of all, there is a distinction in me. And that is a distinction between me as a person and my works. I, as a person, remain a work of God. We are God's workmanship. Before I do anything, my eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, the people that surround me, everything um, that sort of constitutes my world of care, that in itself already defines me as a person before I even lift a finger. God's justification does not reduce us to what we do with ourselves or what we make of ourselves. It does not judge us on the basis of any sort of achievement and the kind of resume we have. No, it simply constitutes us as, a, as people purely on the basis of the goodness, God's goodness, that he shares with us. So I, as a person, am distinct from my own works. I, as a person, come before my own works. And what God's justification does say, again, to put it in more um, tangible terms, is that contrary to the resume-like outlook of our day, people are not reducible to their accomplishments or acquisitions. Before any accomplishments or before any sins are even taken into account, the sinner is, above all and irrevocably, a beloved creature of God. The sinner is a person. We are all persons, distinct from the busyness that defines our lives. God declares us good. He declares us good. And he declares us in good standing. And that is really something remarkable. Because in that sense, and justification is a very big word, God justifies us. But I want to... I want to um, submit to you that justification actually in this context is, comes very close to what that word means when we use it colloquially. To justify something, to say it's justified, um, is to say that it makes sense, that it has a place, that it belongs. When you say, well, this word is unjustified here, you should, that kind of language is unjustified, you say it doesn't belong, it doesn't have a place. When God justifies us, it's precisely this that he also does. He leads us to the recognition that before we do anything, things are not simply blank, but that they have a certain kind of gravity and that we ourselves have a certain kind of gravity. We have a place. We belong. We make sense. We make sense in God's plan for the world. We have a place. I could not emphasize that um, enough. Now, Luther also, and I think this is, um, I'm just going to make a couple of comments um, on what that, what that means, both in terms of the life of the church and then in terms of our own lives as Christians. In terms of the life of the church, what this means is, Luther is, is, is something like this. Luther is very much aware that obviously in the world there is also um, human and natural evil, that we do not always see the goodness of God. He is also a realist. And in that sense, he says, we need to realize 
that God is good. And there are particular places where we are again assured of that goodness of God. There are particular places where this sort of distinction between me as somebody constituted by God and loved by God and anything else that I might do is reiterated to me so I don't sink into myself and sink into despair. And for him, that is word and sacrament. That is the life of the church. It's something that, it's, it's, it's everything that happens around the altar. It is baptism where God says to us, you are my child in case you're in doubt. It is the Lord's Supper where God offers his body and blood to say, this is how good you are. I have deemed you worthy of the body and blood of my son. Trust me. This, these are the sort of places where God wants us to take him at his word for Luther and to be assured that he is good so that through those places we would then see that his goodness is not restricted just to the altar here, but rather so that our eyes would be opened and we would see his goodness, even where it is tainted um, by natural and more often human evil. So what does it mean for us to then live? Not as those who, again, go with the flow, who think that nothing is good for good and who fear that something should be good for good because then that binds me and obligates me and I don't know what to do with that gift other than possibly re-gift it to somebody. Who will take it? Well, what it means for us is, first of all, that as Christians we see reality differently. Things, and I think that's very important in our world today, things are not blank they're not meaningless. They're not nothings. I am not meaningless and I am not nothing until I've made something of myself. My body is not blank or meaningless. It is also the gift of God. So the capacity to see things for what they are, to perceive the truth, is really one fundamental outcome of Luther's emphasis on divine justification. And God's reiteration of that justification in word and sacrament. God's assurance that he is indeed good and his invitation to see his goodness as far more sweeping than simply what happens uh, in church on Sundays. So seeing the truth. People, circumstances, things are seen for what they are. They are not ballasts. They're not meant to keep us on our toes. But then if they are not meant to keep us on our toes, if my phone is not meant to sort of uh, keep me worrying, when is the new iPhone going to come out so I can make sure that I get the new one and, 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 and you know, throw this one away, um, then what are these things? Beginning with my body and then anything else that I might have, anybody else that surrounds me. What, if they are not um, burdens, then what are they? Um, and Luther says they become really opportunities. God is good to us and he bestows everything on us, including our own persons, so that we too could be like God. And I think that's really the most significant thing about what Luther has to say. So that we would do in a human way what God does to us. And that means a certain kind of freedom from judgment. That means reaching out to our neighbors to the undesirables, to people who otherwise we look down on because they do not have the latest iPhone or don't live in the right part of town, but to see them as brothers and sisters and to see our own being 
in this kind of rich texture that it has as an opportunity to serve. It's not something that I have to worry about. It's rather something that enables me to be like God because now I can actually sort of approach others and bless others with the blessings that I have received. So what really changes, and maybe this is, this is just to put it shortly, is that, that the fundamental question of life or that drives our life changes. Um, the core question of life is no longer by what means can I win the approbation of others and so to be and to exist. It's not by what means can I win the approbation of others and so to be and to exist. But rather the question is, how can I serve others and do so with my whole being? How can I serve others and do so with my whole being since God has served me? Because of God's goodness and because it is not and should not be a problem for us, um, we can now be in a human way what God has been towards us and how he has been um, towards us. Um, and we can talk about sort of how specifically to do that. Um, uh, I may want to make a couple more comments, but I think we're going to be running out of time about how the gifts that we have um, really have the character of forgiveness and promise. Because when we come into others, other people's lives with our own blessings, in some sense, we make them unstuck from the lives that they live. We provide them relief from their own past, which they are otherwise bound to repeat. We provide forgiveness because there is a new opportunity that arises. But we also promise something. We promise to be because if God is for us, then we can also be for others. And that would be sort of a, a direction in which we could specifically unpack what it means that God's been good to us and how we should live under God's goodness. What we have and what we are has the character of forgiveness and promise as we come into other people's lives. So um, thank you very much for your attention. I hope I haven't gone too drastically over time, a little bit. Um, but I'll be happy to answer any questions you might have. Well, I think, I think it is burdensome precisely because it requires this kind of constant attentiveness. Um, because what I have is only good for a time. Its goodness has an expiration date. Um, and in that sense, um, I would submit ju that just as Luther criticized Erasmus for proposing the kind of theology that made people into reckless workers because they were so obsessed about them themselves, right? They thought of God, but only for a moment, and then it was all about them. And they, and they worked and worked and worked and, and took advantage of everything that the church had to offer. And then they took advantage of indulgences because they just, nothing seemed to give them any sort of peace. Um, the question that we need to ask today is, in a world where things are only good for a time, um, do we have peace and do we actually yearn for peace? Right? And is sort of being on that kind of a treadmill the kind of existence that we want? You know, we don't want to be in, we don't want to be encumbered, burdened by gifts. 
And like I said, very often we do perceive gifts as threatening because somehow they obligate us. We need to, we don't want to throw them away. And you know, if there's a person to, re, you know, to give the gift to, then we feel better about it. Um, you know, and so on and so forth. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I do think it's 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 precisely it's precisely that that um, um, where nothing is good for good. Um, you know. Uh, yeah, we seeming, seemingly have this sort of control over things, but in reality, we are simply totally beholden to all the fads and all that incessant movement of stuff that goes on around us. Mm-hmm. Um, Fourteen eighty-three, fifteen forty-six. So this year, and this year we are celebrating his posting of the 95 Thesis, which was um, his call to a debate on indulgences, where he sort of challenged the indulgences precisely from that kind of perspective, where he says, no, the church already has a treasure. You don't, you know, you don't have to sort of um, uh, tap into people's insecurity by making them buy, in, by making them buy indulgences. Because that the church has a treasure, and that, that treasure is the gospel, and that is really the goodness of God, right? That, that is what the church should be in the business of, not um, making people anxious and restless, and then sort of increasing that anxiousness and restlessness by of offering yet another avenue such as indulgences, right? So, so 500 years... Um, but uh, of the posting of the 95 Thesis, that's what we'll be celebrating this year. But uh, the 500th anniversary of Luther's birth was in 1983, when certain people were not even born yet. Um, <laughs> you know, Luther came to this insight sort of late in life. He was already in his, uh, um, well, 171734. Mm-hmm. Right. Just wanted to put that, put up the last slide. Uh, can you ask that again? Um, it's about. I mean, you're talking about anger and and sort of. Overtook it. Uh huh. Um, yeah, and I th- and I think today it's also um, it's also something that we struggle with. I mean, again, to go back to that quote that I that I that I had there, Luther said, in his own day, it was difficult to convince people of the goodness of God. And today, I think it's 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 precisely that because um, the sinner does not necessarily want to hear that God is good, because again, we we think that. If, if God is out of the picture, then everything is up for grabs. Everything can be redefined. Everything be, can be sort of, nothing is good for good, right? Nothing, nothing obligates me. So I, so I think there is a sense of, um, you know, there, there may be a sense of uh, sort of anger. And that's why, you know, faith is not something that we reason ourselves into. Because it takes, um, 
you know, it, it, it is a gift of God. It's a, it's a gift of a certain kind of perception when we, when we look at the goodness of God and the goodness of the world. But, in, but in, in particular, starting with ourselves, and we say, this is not God trying to trap me and obligate me by showering me with gifts that I don't know what to do with because I don't want these gifts. I'd rather sort of be my own master and, and so on and so forth. But then going back to Brandon's question, well, does that make us better off? Um, and, I, and, I, and again, I would say um, it doesn't because I think escaping from God's goodness into the goodness that we make and create, we become victims of the fact that goodness is sort of a free-flowing thing in the world and we have to chase these... these um, uh, uh, you know these fads, for lack of a better word. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that if that if that if that captures that. I think I think that's that's part of the issue that, that we we may become angry, uh, and some people do become angry when you tell them that you know God is good, not in the sense that He leaves you alone and is absent, but in the sense that He gives sort of meaning and texture and, and embodiment to your to your entire life. Um, so I don't know if that answers your if that answers your question. It is a big question. <laughs> um, and, you know, in Luther's day, obviously, the problem was that, that people sort of thought of God um, uh, very, like I said, very briefly. God was, God was sort of a vanishing point in their thoughts. Um, they, they, they recognized that there was God, um, but then they immediately started thinking about themselves. And Luther considered that a failure on the part of the church. The church did not emphasize and sufficiently sort of draw out the implications of God's goodness so that they would actually take God at his word, um, so that people would trust it. Now, today, I think we might be in, a, in, a, in, in, in just the opposite situation. We tend to trivialize God's goodness, right? But, but I, I would say that whether you um, fail to mention it and tease out its implications or whether you uh, trivialize it, uh, into some sort of oh God is just good because He just makes you know it's like well that's I can be what I what I am and, uh, and you know God's goodness is the kind of acceptance that, that like I said amounts to Him leaving me alone, pretty much. Um, uh, but so uh, we are somewhere in between these two opposites: one a very medieval one, and one a very contemporary one. One an insufficient attention to God's goodness, one a trivialization of divine goodness. But we are somewhere in between, and I would say just like the people in the Middle Ages. Um, God's goodness is a difficult thing for us because that means that I am not, that, that before I am anything, I am given to myself, right? That God makes me as a person and I am distinct from both my failures but also from all of my achievements. That before I, before I do, I already am and I am in this kind of rich and textured way. Um, there, was a, there was a question Mm-hmm. Yes, of course, and we we are we are we are we are control freaks. But the problem again, it's it, there are all these paradoxes that when we want to take control, when we want to define what is good and how long it should be good, in reality, um, we are not in control. What is in control is precisely all those entities in the world that can give us a thumbs up, because we still we are, we are inherently creatures oriented to recognition. We cannot do without other people. Um, we can only sort of be. Um, when others also give us to ourselves. So we want to, in a sense, make of ourselves what we, what we will, but on the other hand, we also recognize 
that I can only be what I make of ourselves when others also give me the thumbs up and recognize me as that, right? It's this sort of, this sort of bizarre paradox that I am my own master, but, I, but, but even as I strive to be my own master, I can only be given to myself. Uh, but the world gives me to myself at a very steep price, and that price is precisely the treadmill um, that I'm, I'm, I'm chasing the world just, just so I might be. Um, and that's pretty, that's pretty exhausting. Um, so you talked about how with justification, God gives us a place to belong besides mm-hmm. that. How can that really speak to people, especially in a generation that doesn't really like to stay put and kind of has FOMO? Uh-huh. Well, and, and I, I, would say, I would say that that's precisely where the difficulty lies, right? That we don't, we don't want that because in, in our um, world today, we are all tourists. It's the people without credit cards who are stuck in a place. Um, and we don't want to be like that. You know, we don't, we don't, want, to, we don't want too much ballast. We don't, and again, so that's, that's exactly the challenge. Uh, how do you sort of, but I, I do believe it, that it happens through the proclamation of God's goodness, especially God's goodness in Christ. That's the message that we have to preach, but we have to realize that it's not just, again, some sort of acceptance and vague forgiveness, but it really is an eye-opening event where, you, where we realize that God actually has done more for me than I could possibly have dreamt of, that actually my life, my place, the people that surround me, um, that, that's, the, that's my world of care. Um, and it's not a burden. I'm not simply stuck in it. Um, it's, again, something that becomes an opportunity to be towards others the way God has been um, towards me, but but it it really takes. I think that's precisely sort of what, where where faith comes in. We can we we inherently rebel against that message, perhaps even more so today than back in in Luther's day. Thank you, thank you Dr. Malish. Let's uh, let's give Dr. Malish an applause. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.